Hi, my name is Sarah Bienenfeld. I'm standing in our Rutsheva headquarters in Beit El. We live in Toledo, Ohio. We're visiting, and we love our Rutsheva. It's our homepage, and everyone should enjoy it and benefit from its news. This is Aaron Roller from Brooklyn, New York, and I love Arutsheva because it's a great source of news in Israel. Hi, this is Mindy Roller from Brooklyn, New York, here at Arutsheva, and I love Arutsheva because it's the best place to get the most factual and actual news from Israel. And tune in on the website, www.israelnationalnews.com. Check it out. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. Folks, thanks once again for joining us for this hour of the Noahide Nation show. And before I forget, as I forgot last week, Noahide Nation has actually finished its 100th show. And that actually took place last week, and I forgot to mention it. And Adam... Didn't mention it either. I was completely unaware of it. Well, and and I was, and I just got wrapped up in the subject that we're talking about that it just got away from me. But 100 shows is a real milestone for for Noahide Nations and for any radio show when you get right down to it. But for us as Noahides to be able to do the 100th show on Israel National Radio, a purely Orthodox Jewish station, is unheard of. I mean, I, I used to sit back and think when it first started that here we are, a, a Jewish organization working with a Noahide organization. Maybe the first time in history of, of radio that this has actually happened because I did a little research and I couldn't, there was nothing to be found that was similar that, that could make that claim. So it was just us. Mm-hmm. And here we are, a hundred shows later, getting ready to do our hundred and first. This is, uh, the first show leading to 200 shows is Rosh Hashem. <laughs> oh, boy. That's kind of wearing me out already. <laughs> Just thinking about it. But you, you don't have to do them all at once, right? <laughs> oh, Baruch <laughs> But anyway, folks, we appreciate you sticking around here with us for, you know, 100 and now 100 plus shows. And uh, Adam and I are going to kind of do a review of the Noahide laws because we had somebody who made a comment about... Uh, well, I don't know how you would really categorize this, but it was a comment that it's just really, an observation that comes up from time to time. I found with with people. Yeah, this is the first time I've seen this observation. Yeah, and and me neither. But it never occurred to me to kind of how do you classify that? Sure, I, I've sure. seen the and heard the statement that you know when you're no hide that there's really nothing to do. They're all negative commandments. Well, there are a lot and, of no hides who, who have this misunderstanding. Oh, absolutely. But somebody happened to to make a post about this, so we're here to kind of kind of clear this misconception that there's absolutely no way, there's nothing to do. Uh, I mean, and you'll you'll see as we go on here. But uh, just as kind of a, uh, no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book one day, and it's gonna be called "Statements People Made to Me and Questions They Asked." Just because there are certain statements and questions that come up all the time. And so it's it's good that this is one of them, 
and it's good yeah. that we're dealing with this on this show, I think. Yeah, I think so, too, because it gives us an opportunity to share with people that, you know, being a, a Noahide isn't a, an easy way out, so to speak, because that's kind of what it make, makes me think of when uh, people make that kind of statement. It's like you're just really looking for the easy way out because you didn't like church, you don't like the whole deal with church. So if I become a no, I don't have to do nothing. Well, yeah. it's, you know, on the contrary. But anyway, the uh, uh, seven uh, Noahide laws, uh, don't commit uh, blasphemy, uh, do not worship idols, do not steal, do not commit murder, do not commit sexual immorality. We are to establish courts of justice and do not eat the flesh of a living animal. So the person who made the the uh, post had uh, suggested that none of these laws were positive and that they were all negative, and yet you know as, uh, many consider the establishing of courts of justice to be a a positive. It's actually both because right. on the other side of it, it's do not pervert justice. Right. So it's a positive and negative in and of itself. But those are. Uh, just a, a thumbnail sketch of what the, the seven Noahide laws are. Those seven, depending on who you listen to, equate to uh, 62 or 66. And then, of course, you know, those 66 turn into thousands. I mean, it just depends on the circumstance. So yeah. we're here today to kind of uh, get rid of this myth that being a Noahide means you don't have to do anything. It's just a, a mystery to me how you get there anyway. I don't feel like I've not done anything. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot more going on to it. You know, one thing you have to understand about halakha, maybe this is a, a misunderstanding on people's part, is that, you know, you have seven statements, seven laws, but the idea is not to say that these are the only laws. The idea is that these are sort of handles. These are handles that make it easy for us to refer to a body of law within the Jewish tradition that referred to mainly to, no, to, to, to non-Jews. This body of law, these seven handles, actually broaden out, like you said, you have 66, you have 33, and you have 66. Mm-hmm. The, the fact of the matter, even within when we start talking about 33 and 66 and all this, actually those are also just sort of like subcategories. Right. Because really what you find out is with Judaism or with any type of law system, American laws, You'll have one law category, but then you'll have a numerous or an infinite, potentially infinite number of situations, and each one has to be handled differently. Exactly. So the I, the whole idea there is is that these categories and these subcategories are really meant to be sort of like the parameters within which human beings operate, and that from a case to case basis. You determine what type of action that you do. The fact of the matter is, is that when we say say that the seven Noahide laws are, are, are given in the neg- negative. Well, with the exception of justice, that's true. It's a positive and a negative. But since it's a, these are categories, the fact that the categories are negative doesn't mean that everything below them or everything contained within them is negative as well. Right. It. I mean, it's it's not like a you know mutually exclusive idea where. This is negative, therefore there can be no positive within it. The idea of the Noahide laws was meant to establish a stable, civil, peaceful society. Mm-hmm. Going more in depth in how to interact with each other, 
obviously you've got to have some positives as well. You can't. Well, it's inherent. You can't only have some. Yeah, you, yeah, it's inherent, right? You almost have to do that, like you know, not to commit blasphemy against your Creator. Well, how do you even come to know your Creator if you don't study about the Creator? Which, in and of itself, is a a positive act. Well, let, so <laughs> let, let's do a little let's do a little thought experiment real quick to see if if in fact it makes any sense whatsoever that the Noahide laws are only meant to be negative. Okay. Okay. So one of the first Noahide laws is not to worship many gods. It's against idolatry, correct? Right. Don't worship many gods. Don't worship more gods, right? So you don't do that. Does that mean that you're 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 following the Torah? Let's think about it. are there there are there there are people who exist in this world who don't worship many gods who still are operating outside of the Torah framework. Well, how how many gods do Muslims worship? One. Okay. How many gods do Buddhists worship? Gosh, you know, I'm not that familiar with them, but I'm thinking of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. I mean, they worship many gods. Right, so they would be violating it in that case. Yeah. Buddhists, depending on what type of Buddhism, you're talking about the, the philosophical Buddhism, the original Buddhism, which is atheistic? None. Right. right. Which brings us, of course, to atheists who worship no gods. Right. So obviously an atheist, if the, if the prohibition is against worshiping many gods, then an atheist who worships no gods is certainly safe from worshiping many gods. Right. Now, does that then make sense to then infer from that that he therefore, an atheist, he or she therefore has a place in the world to come. They have kept the Noahide laws. Does, I mean, could, would we make that statement? Would we be bold and say, yes, atheists are Noahides? They've kept the Noahide laws properly? Not in the truest sense. And, right. and why do I say that? The, the Rambam teaches us that, sure, you as an individual can keep the Noahide laws and be considered a wise person. For keeping those laws. But it's those who follow the Noahide laws because God gave them to us that become the pious and righteous of the nations. So yeah. it's it's believing that God gave those to us. Excellent. So the, the Rambam says in Mishnah Torah, you know, those who, who uh, accept to, to fulfill these seven Noahide laws, not just because they make sense, which an atheist might do, there are many atheists who wrote about how to have a civil government. Right. And so, right. you know, hey, you could possibly have a civil government that would allow atheists to exist. So this might be a rational set of laws. But the Rambam says that's not good enough. Ultimate, ultimately, these seven Noahide laws, you have to accept them because God gave them at Mount Sinai to the Jewish people, even though they had been previously given to Noah. And this is why you keep it. This is why you keep the seven Noahide laws. Noahide has to accept that. If he accepts it, they have a place in the world to come. They're guaranteed a spot in the world to come if this is why they're keeping these Noahide laws. And in doing that and coming to that understanding and, and you know, truly in the heart accepting that, you then get into the not committing idolatry. Well, by not committing idolatry, you, there's, there's only you have, to, you have to study in order to even understand what idolatry is. Sure. So Definitely. you can do that by studying uh, books written about other gods by other cultures, or you can do that by reading the Torah and coming to know who the, who the Creator is, the the real sure. God. And when you do that, but just you know, by virtue of the fact you're studying the Torah, it is a positive act. It is an action. It's not doing nothing. It is an action. So, in, and that's just the studying part of it. 
And Adam, I think I think we believe the same on this. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we also look at you know not to commit idolatry means that we should worship the true Creator. Sure, uh, and, and not committing theft. Not only should we just not commit theft in order to really make that for real, we need to give charity. Yes. So, and that's you know kind of I think where we're probably headed with this. So it's really not a a matter of not doing anything it's that's not what it means at all if you if you not do and i've and I've, I've actually met noah hides who that was their philosophy is is who, who have agreed with the person who made this post if the intention behind keeping the noah laws was not to do things and that's it well the practical reality of that is that person wastes away because they if there's nothing for them to do they shouldn't do things it separates them from other human beings. It gives nothing for them to really hold on to, and there, there's no way for them to draw close to a shem. And I've seen I've seen Noahide families who take this approach of observance of the Noahide laws, and I've seen it split their families because the children have nothing to hold on to. Right. The, the parents, a lot of times because of the situation with the family, wind up moving beyond the Noahide laws anyway because at some point they go, well, there's nothing for me to do. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is is that I think there's a big misunderstanding looking at the Noahide laws from that point of view. God wants all of his children to, to, to draw close to him. Right. And the essence is is that God created us as an act of free will or as an act of charity. I guess, uh, uh, grace, we could even say. You sure. know, as an act, He did this... Um, Without benefit for himself, God creating us does, does nothing for us. And he, he created us so that we, with the express purpose that we draw close to him. Well, how do we draw close to God? It's very simple. We emulate him to the best of our ability. To the best of the ability of a human being, the more you emulate God, the more like him that you become. So God certainly has done charity with us in creating us. You know, and sustaining us and giving us food. We certainly don't earn the money that God gives us. We certainly don't earn the food that he gives us. We don't earn anything that he gives us. God has given it to us because he's chosen to out of his love for us and, and our desire to help us draw close to him and to give us the resources to help others. God's given us money and food and clothes and, right. and, and housing. And knowing that this is something God does, we should take this as a lesson of something that we should do. So... Mm-hmm. Obviously, a Noahide ought to perform acts of tzedakah, acts of charity. Acts of kindness. Acts of kindness. Right. That's what the mitzvot are for. Absolutely. And if there's any doubt that what I'm saying is is, is untrue, we have an interesting uh, person that I was I was showing you this a little bit earlier. Yeah. Rabbi uh, Moses Feinstein, just to let you guys know, this, this he was a gadol hador. He was a, a great of the generation in America. He passed away in the 80s, I believe. But he was sort of the you know the the the, the first and last stop on the on uh, when it came to uh, halakha, and um, he was asked a question about prayers in public school. There was a push to have uh, prayers could be read by both non-Jews, Jews, and this was being pushed by the Christians. So they were asked, "Can we pray these prayers?" And 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 um, his conclusion was yes. But the interesting thing is the reasoning behind all of this. His reasoning behind all of this is that, listen to what he says here. On the question of whether Noahide is is required to engage in prayer, it is elementary that he's not required to do so. 
because prayer is not enumerated among the Noahide commandments in Sanhedrin 56, nor is it mentioned by Maimonides. So right. he says it's not, it's not mentioned by these two important sources. Right. However, with reference to whether such prayer would be reckoned a mitzvah, it seems to me that when a Noahide prays, he does accrue reward. For it is stated in the book of Isaiah, My abode shall be proclaimed a house of prayer unto all the nations. And Rashi comments there, not unto Israel alone. While they need to need not engage in prayer, it is plain that Noahites do accomplish a mitzvah whenever they do pray. For if this were not so, what point would there be to proclaiming his a house of prayer for all peoples? This freedom from having to engage in prayer is, however, limited. He's saying Noahites don't have to pray, but only in a very limited sense do they not have to pray. Right. Right. He, he said this is limited to the question of periodic praying. What's periodic praying? Well, Jews are obligated to pray. Every day. Every day. Um, Shakrit, which is morning prayers, Mincha, afternoon prayers, Mariv in the evening. And then on Shabbat, you have the Musaf prayers, which are added to, they're, they're right after Shakrit on, on, on the Sabbath. To put it in a nutshell, because there's more, that you, you, you could explain this very in depth, but we'll just take it from a very simple standpoint. The prayers mirror the offerings made in the temple. That's a very simple way of just kind of encapsulating the idea there. Right. Noahides are not required to make prayers in those periods during the day, but Jews are obligated. Well, there's more than just periodic prayers. There's personal prayer, hitbotadut. There is the there are there are personal prayers and, and, and everything like that. So this is what he says. I think and does not apply for prayer that arises from some need. For when a Noahide is pressed by needs such as when he is injured or forlorn, he definitely is expected to pray. Neither is it strange for this obligation to go unmentioned among the seven laws, because such prayer relates to the basic belief in God. He's saying you don't have to you don't have to specifically mention a Noahide. It's obvious. Mm-hmm. It's, there's no need to, to to make it a commandment. It's obvious a Noahide should pray. That he alone, God, provides that he heals the sick. For for anyone which should neglect to pray, pray to God, or not to turn to Him, it would indicate that He does not believe in Him, but in other forces. This is Moses so, Feinstein saying this. This is not. <laughs> this is not me. This is not Ray. Right. This is Moses Feinstein saying it's obvious. You have Noahides ought to. There, there is this idea that Noahides ought to pray. This reasoning can be carried beyond prayer. That's my whole point in bringing this up. It can be carried beyond prayer. Well, and the thing is, is it's also true that we are not required to, in the sense that Jews are required to, and certainly it is not written as one of the seven laws, but either is uh, honoring your mother and father. Does that mean we as Noahides shouldn't do that? No, absolutely. I in mean, fact, we do honor our mother fact, and fathers. Not only that, but, but the Talmud actually re- records Gentiles who, because of their honoring their mother and father, were richly rewarded by heaven. I mean, this is. I mean, this is this is very basic. Let's pull back a little bit, and I'll give you sort of a, a an example of this from real life. We have roads running throughout our country. Wonderful roads, right? Right. Some of them. So, well, some of them. <laughs> Most well, of them. Compared to other places, we'll say they're all they're all wonderful. Now, there is no um, law in this country that says you have to drive on a road. You could presumably drive in a ditch if you want to, right? Sure. And in Texas, uh, sometimes that's what they do. Sometimes they do. <laughs> it's really fun. But, but the idea here is that if you have the choice between driving in a ditch and driving on a road, 
what are you going to pick? You're going to pick the road. You know, nine times out of ten, you're going to pick the road. Why? Well, because, well, come on, stupid. <laughs> it mm-hmm. just makes more sense, right? Right, right? It's obvious you're going to drive on a road. And this is the same kind of reasoning. You know, where something is, is obvious to the mind, obvious to the intellect, there's no real need to command someone to do it. Right. And where there is a command, there's because there's, a, there's at the very least, a perceived alternative. And in areas, though, where it's obvious that the, the action ought to be such, there's no need for God to give a commandment to do it. You should know with common sense to do it. Right. I was thinking, too, another great example of this is in the Torah. And it's with Noah. They, the sages teach that the uh, first six laws were given to uh, Adam. Okay. One of which is not to worship other gods. And Noah was considered righteous in the eyes of Hashem. So much so that he and his family were preserved to save mankind. Everyone else was gone, taken out, except Noah, because of this righteousness. Now, what was one of the first things that Noah did when the flood receded? One of the first things he did was build an altar and make sacrifice to to God. Mm. Was that not doing something? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. He already knew, well, you know, okay, it doesn't say that I should worship God, but that, does that mean that you shouldn't? No, right. that's not what it means. It's, he's telling us not to worship other gods. He's not saying, right. do not worship me. That's not even implied. And clearly, in, from the Torah itself, Noah makes this sacrifice to Hashem. So, he felt the need to do that, and we all know that even before then, Noah was considered righteous. Sure. So he must have made maybe a sacrifice or two even before then. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, sacrifices started with Cain and Abel. You know, so this is uh, again an area where um, it just there was no need to make a specific commandment for. It. And, and I think the point that you're making is a very good one, Ray. It's you know, serving God is an obvious choice. I mean, it's not even a, a choice really. I mean, it's just obvious. Something that you would do. I think that there are there are people who are are looking at this. They're being just a little bit too literal. They're being overly. They see the. They see do not do do not do. They go oh, okay. Do not do. <laughs> right. I'm gonna I'm I'm going to spend the rest of my life as a couch potato. Right. I, and sadly, I, I think oftentimes that's what it is. I've also talked to other people who are so fresh out of Christianity that they're they really have a, a high level of anger directed towards. Christianity itself, whether it be the church, whether it be the pastor, whether it be the people, or all the above. It doesn't matter, but a lot of people who have responded in this way, they have a whole harboring some sort of resentment towards their previous belief system. And I think by virtue of that, oftentimes they get hung up on this, oh, well, I don't have to do this, because it's kind of an easy way out. It It gets us off the hook, but you're really not. How can you be off the hook if you were never on the hook? I mean, I mean, I mean, don't. I mean, and why are we looking at it as being on as being on the hook? I mean, the fact is, is that you know, don't you want a relationship with God? That's that's the whole point. God, you can't have a relationship with somebody without putting work into it. Well, and Adam, we're getting really close to the bottom of the hour, and I know we're going to have to sneak out of here, and we can we can just go on and on, and uh, we'll have a, a, a brief moment to do that when we get to the other side of this break. So, folks, stick around with us. Uh, Adam and I will be right back. Catch you, you on the other side. See you soon. 
This is a moment in Jewish history. Joseph Trumpeldor became the highest-ranking Jewish soldier in the Russian army. Despite prejudice and persecution, Trumpeldor won medals of honor in the Russo-Japanese War and even lost an arm in the fighting. Not satisfied to remain a war hero in Russia, Trumpeldor moved to Israel, where he joined the pioneering movements, and he also teamed up with Zev Jabotinsky to start the first Jewish army unit since Roman times. Beginning with the Zion Mule Corps and later the Jewish Legion, Trumpeldor created what later became the Israel Defense Forces. And Trumpeldor's philosophy of doing whatever it takes to help the cause and his favorite phrase of Endavar, meaning it doesn't matter, was an inspiration to many. Trumpeldor died at the Battle of Tel Chai in 1920, uttering the words Tov Lamud Ba'at Arzenu, meaning it's good to die for our country. This moment in Jewish history has been brought to you by Israel National Radio. You are a Jew. In February, Israeli soldiers helped the Palestinian woman give birth. You didn't read about it unless you subscribed to the Israel National News. Two days later, an Israeli woman gave birth in a Palestinian hospital. Where did you read it? AP, CBS News, every major paper. Google it. Go ahead. This is a PR war and they are winning. You're listening to Arut Shaba, Israel National Radio and Israel National News. Download our podcasts, listen to our live radio, and subscribe to our daily email news service, IsraelNationalRadio.com. Shalom and welcome back, folks. Appreciate you sticking around for the second half of the Noahide Nation show on uh, show number 101. Adam, I, you know, it's really been a, a privilege because you were you were on board for a lot of those shows. I keep thinking about that. It's like, my gosh, you know, Baruch Hashem, to, yeah. we've been able to really pull this off. <laughs> but, you know, we've been talking about this whole thing, uh, you know, doing these 101 shows sure doesn't feel like we did nothing. <laughs> I mean, of course, that's not written in the Seven Laws either. But you Do know, a radio show on Israel National Radio. Maybe if Carilla Deville showed up, you'd feel a little bit more certain about these hundred and one somethings. <laughs> not Dalmatians, but hundred and one shows at least. You know, <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of fun times. We've had some serious times, and uh, this discussion that we're having here is pretty serious. Anytime you're talking about your eternal life, I mean, your your life. I mean, here is a, is a human being. It's just such a short amount of time. It's just a fleeting moment in time. Where's the rest of it spent? Now, you know, this kind of brings to mind something. I'm surprised we haven't talked about this, but it's been a thought of mine for, for a long time, and that is there are actually people on the other side of this issue. There are people who actually come in and they start doing everything, you know, and they start, <laughs> right. I mean, they, they, they do everything to the point where you're going, well, why don't you just convert finally? I mean, it's just right. like, yeah. you know, yeah. what happens to the people who, who try to do everything? Well, they get very upset because they find that in their life they're kind of alone and they're by themselves. And why is why am I by myself? I'm doing God's commandments. Let me tell you why that is. And it's a very it's a very simple but obvious thing. And once you once you know what it is, you'll, you'll be very amazed. The fact is is that although, like the Rambam says, a, a, a non-Jew or a Noahide who wants to keep more than the seven, like start keeping some of the laws that Israel was commanded, may do so right. as long as they do it. You know, for the sake of getting a reward, and they do it correctly. And it's not we're in recognize we're not doing it because we're commanded to, right? We're doing it because exactly. we want to, because you want to exactly. The, the fact of the matter is, is the one thing that people don't realize is that all the laws in the Torah were given for various reasons. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons there there are there are certain categories of laws that were given with the express purpose to make Israel a distinct people from all the nations, right? 
Now then, if you as a Noahide start keeping laws such as Shabbat fully or close to fully like a, a Jew does, which is meant to distinguish itself as a unique people amongst the nations, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to become a distinct person within the nations from other people within the nations, which right. means <laughs> these laws that are meant to keep Israel sort of in its own boundaries, well, you're keeping these laws, and now you've separated yourself from other people around you. Right. Because, you know, not everybody is is going to keep those laws. Not everybody is going to um, keep all the laws of Kashrut. Right? No. Just think about it like this. You want to go and, and have uh, dinner with your family, right? Mm-hmm. And so they want to go out and have a nice meal at a restaurant. And you say, I'm sorry. I only eat kosher. Well, what have you now done? You've separated yourself. Yeah. You've, you've alienated. You've the, alienated them. Yeah. And it's because the nature of those kinds of laws are meant, at the end of the day, to keep Israel a distinct people. Right. And so you need to be aware of, when you're taking choosing additional commandments to keep, you know, above the things that are obvious that everybody should be doing, like honoring your father and mother and not driving in ditches and things like that, <laughs> right. using roads, <laughs> you know, beyond, you know, beyond that, you know, there, there are, you need to be aware of what is the nature of the law that I'm thinking about keeping. And this is what I call a little practical advice for, for Noahides. Before you commit to do something, think about the rationality behind it. What, what kind of effect could possibly happen with you keeping a law that Jews typically keep? And if you want to be very careful about this because if you, you choose laws which have the which are meant to keep Israel distinct, you should not be surprised by the fi- fact that it further separates you from other people. Mm-hmm. From both sides. Actually. From both sides. So, absolutely. You know, that's when you really begin to find out truly what uh, it means to be set apart. Sure. <laughs> you really You really figure it out then. And, you know, <laughs> the fact is, is that Noahides are meant to have good family relationships. And... You know, you need to make sure. I mean, if this is part of your plan, like you're you're moving in the direction of conversion, that's one thing. If you're doing it because haphazardly you want to keep more laws because you want to be more holy and yada, 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 I think you've kind of missed the point a little bit. Right. And, you know, that you just need to think these things through a little bit more. So I, I just want to throw in that other counterbalance about doing too much. You know, you, you have to be aware of who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, and what these laws are that you're, you're trying to observe. That having been said. <laughs> well, it's it's obvious that you can look at these as being very rationally sane laws. And for the atheist, my question to an atheist would always be, you, you call these, you know, like your morals, that there is no God, they're, they're your morals. Well, my question is, where did where did they come from? Where did you learn that this was a moral act? Where? There is an answer to the question, and inevitably, when they get there, they they can't help themselves. They either just flat out deny it and walk away from you just so they can maintain their position, or they tell you flat out that, well, I learned about them at Sunday school. You know, know, personally, after having studied things like morals and ethics for a long time, just from the standpoint of of, uh, being a a philosopher, I'll, I'll tell you this much. I don't really think it matters what people tell you. I think it matters what they do. And I think that you should always look at what people do to determine whether or not you listen to them. Right. You know, if you, if you have a person who has a, an issue in their life that's kind of a major issue, maybe, you know, even if they sound, say something that sounds good, maybe you shouldn't listen to them too much. I often think of uh, Heidegger, who's a, uh, a popular philosopher. He was German, and uh, he had come up with his own ethical system. And when the Nazis began taking power... Heidegger became a Nazi. 
he had a, his mentor who held the, the chair of philosophy above him was Jewish. So Heidegger, wanting the position, had no problem deposing his uh, mentor of taking over the chair because he was a Jew. Now, such a person, should we listen to anything they have to say about ethics and morality? Absolutely not. We shouldn't listen to anything they have to say. So my standpoint is, is that I really don't care what somebody says. I just care about what they do. Well, and if we think about it, you kind of discussed it uh, before about the, the temple. And if uh, where that is mentioned is in Isaiah 56, and it's particularly particularly strong in, uh, through verses three through seven. But you know, it says that all who guard the Sabbath against desecra- desecration grasp my covenant tightly. I will bring them to my holy mountain, and I will gladden them in my house of prayer. Their elevation offerings and their feast offerings will find favor on my altar. For my house of prayer will be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. And this whole thing starts off with, and the foreigners. Mm -hmm. There's going to come a time when the uh, temple is rebuilt that Gentiles are going to have to do something. And that is show up. Well, and they can already do something. I mean, they can can have a hand in in supporting the rebuilding of the temple even now. You have the Temple Institute in Israel, which is... You know, gathering them, gathering like King David, who gathered all the materials to have it ready for when it was time to build the, the the temple. King Solomon, when he went to build the temple, didn't have to start from scratch. Dad had been saving up stuff for a while. Temple institutes like our sort of a modern King David, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know that they're getting everything ready. There are other things people can do as well. For example, support Noad nations. You know, Ray. Um, I, I'm just wondering how many how many millions and billions of dollars are you making off of Noad nations? <laughs> In uh, the case of Noahide Nations, the term not-for-profit <laughs> is, is literal. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it goes without saying that any place that is supporting the work of, of God, that has teachers who are teaching Torah, that are helping people who are in need, that are doing something in, in the way of mitzvot, these are the kinds of places that you want to be making a donation to if you're going to be giving charity. Because we can, you know, we can make things happen and have made things happen. And, in fact, being able to come on uh, Israel National Radio with this kind of radio show is just one of those things. We don't get paid to do this. Yeah. We, we're doing this because we love Hashem. We love uh, people. Uh, we love the Jews people. <laughs> we love, do because yeah. we, we love a lot of people. <laughs> well, my friend, Adam is going to be leaving us here in the next uh, few minutes. And uh, before he does, I just wanted to let you know that we are going to be bringing on Rabbi David Katz as our next guest Torah teacher, and I will catch you on the other side of his teaching. And in the meantime, Adam, I'll see you next week. Hope uh, hope your wife uh, has has that little one. Uh, I know she's too. getting really close, so hopefully the, the baby will be born. You're, uh, you know, you're not the only one. <laughs> 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 yeah. But Zrat Hashem, it'll be very soon. Okay, my friend. Take care, and we'll see you next week, hopefully. See you soon. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another radio broadcast of the week. I'm Rabbi David Katz, and this probably will not air on the week of Hanukkah, but you're going to get some Hanukkah vibes because we are recording on Hanukkah. So since we're in the headspace of Hanukkah, Let's go ahead and give a Noahide highlight of Hanukkah. We're going to set up the story of Hanukkah and we're going to bring it to, to conclusion 
of how the Torah of Shem and what Shem really is coming to represent to us, how it really stems from Hanukkah. Or more or less, how could it, how it could have stemmed from Hanukkah. The story of Hanukkah goes like this. Now we're going to make a long story short, but this is the short story of Hanukkah. The Greeks who come from the, from the house of Japhet, or in Hebrew, Yafis, put together an immaculate array of wisdom. And their wisdom was filling the world. Now the Jewish people and their Torah also takes up the concept of wisdom. So you have a collision course going on. The Greek wisdom wants to fill the world with Greek wisdom. And the Jewish wisdom says, we're not buckling to anyone else's wisdom. Now that is a tremendous conflict and conflicting opinions, conflicting views, conflicting outlooks and philosophies. And the Greeks were the epitome of their philosophy and the, the Jewish Torah has its own philosophy. In that conflict, there creates a scenario where Alexander the Great comes to the Holy Temple in a vision of meeting up with the high priest Shimon HaKohen Gadol Shimon the high priest Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the righteous and instead of Alexander coming to greet Shimon Shimon goes out to greet Alexander now why is Shimon leaving his ground to go confront the, the enemy of wisdom so to speak now the Torah is, can be, is going to be translated into Greek so let's, let's, let's pause for the moment of Shimon and give, give a running flow of Hanukkah. So, Shimon greets Alexander. That's the first problem of Hanukkah. That leads to the translation of the Torah into Greek. And that's where we're going to focus our story today. And out of that, since they did not translate it correctly, and we're going to get into what that means, correctly, the first argument arose into Torah. And from that argument became confusion of the nature of what we call the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, which became filled with confusion or arguments. Whereas the original state of Torah, although more so the Torah of Shem in its day, was devoid of confusion and argument. Now, the Torah is going to be translated to Greek. That's where we're going to focus our story of the Noahide tradition coming inside. What does the Noahide way and the Torah of Shem, how does that come from translation of the Torah to Greek? Now again, the Greeks come from Japheth or Yaphis. Shimon the Tzadik, Shimon the Righteous goes out to greet Alexander. And what we're going to say is Alexander should have come to Shimon the Righteous. What does it say by the prophecy of Japheth? In the tents of Shem you will dwell, Ba'oale Shem. Rearrange those letters, Ba'oale Shem. And it spells Hashem Bali. Hashem comes to me. Or you rearrange the letters Hashem, Moshe comes to me. The Torah of Moshe. Moses. Now we make a logical conclusion here. If Moses comes to Shimon in a revelation, all the more so Alexander comes to you. You don't go running out to him because maybe the revelation came down where you are and you ran out to him. Where's the connection? That was the vital mistake from that 
The Torah was destined to be translated to Greek. One step removed from Shem and his Hebrew aspect of Torah. Then there's going to be argument and conflict and doubt into the Torah. Three strikes, you're out. Now he already, we already assumed the first mistake of going to greet Alexander the Great. Now let's focus on the next phase, the translation of the Torah into Greek. There's a problem in translating the Torah to Greek. Bereshis bara elokim. In the beginning of God's creating the heaven and the earth. That's not how you read it in a literal translation. Literally translated in the beginning of the, of the, of the creation of many gods. You're dealing with a pagan society. And you're going to tell them, Bereshis bara elokim, as in the beginning there was a creation of many gods. They're going to take the Torah and say, look, these are pagan people. So what, are they, what happens with the rabbis translating the Torah of that time? Seventy rabbis got together to translate, each one in a separate chamber. And each one of them came to the conclusion, Oh my, if I translate this literally, they are going to think we are the biggest pagan society on earth. I mean, what a, what a conundrum we're in. It's a battle of wisdoms, and now they think that our wisdom comes from idol worship. A miracle happens to each one of the the, the, the the rabbis. They translate it into Greek with their knowledge of Greek in the beginning of God's having created heaven and earth. One God created heaven and earth. They changed the, the style of translation so that there would not be the thought that there were many gods. It's a miracle. Each one did it the same way. The Greeks then might get the Torah in a, re a lowered, reduced way because you went out from the original to bend over backwards in the translation to guard God's unity but lower the Torah outside the quality of Ba'olei Shem in the tense of Shem. Now you're in the tense of Yafis. You're catering to him. Shem's Torah needs to take reign as the, as the caliber Torah. So what are you going to do? That instance in time was the tremendous opportunity that had the rabbis put their heads together and use the creativity as an opportunity. If you looked at the Torah with a keen eye, every word of Torah can be translated in its original with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and you can produce the Torah in its hard copy fashion like that of Shem. And you don't sacrifice in the translation. There essentially could be the Torah for the Noahide. A translated Torah that caters to the truth. But in the translation, so it's understood, 70 faces of Torah to the 70 nations in the world, as there are 70 languages that go with the Torah. The Torah is going to go through every part of the world, every nation, every face, every tongue. The Torah is going to be translated. It's going to pick up the knowledge and vocabulary and vessels of all the world. And when you do so, those rabbis at that time had the ability to essentially explain the Torah in its status of being like the Torah of Shem. 
Ba'olei Shem, in the tense of Shem. Rearrange the word Ba'olei in the tense of, and what do you get? Ba'elokei Shem, in the God of Shem. And what do we say in prayer? Every day, the Shemona Esrei prayer? Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, Elokei Abraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And of course, where do we get the knowledge of their God? With the God of Shem. The first example is the first problem. How can you get rid of the name Elokim in the plural and keep the meaning and not bend over backwards, how are you going to juggle all these, all these, these, these problems? Why don't you try to explain it for what it really comes to say? You have a question. Why is the name God Elohim in plural if it has a connotation of the singular? The Noahites have that kind of question. Why is the name of God, when we're going to use names of God, why is it plural, yet it connotes singular? And a not a not acceptable answer is I don't know. Those rabbis they they forced themselves to know, and they came up with a long answer. No, you just rearrange the order, and in the beginning of God's having created the heaven and the earth. But that's not what it says really. It says Bereshis bara Elokim in the beginning of creation of and then this name Elokim. Well, what if we make what's called a hekish? The shortest distance between two points. Look at the name Elohim. Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, and a final Mem. And we know in the Torah the final Mem is the level where wisdom is embedded in the five final letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The final Kaf, Mem, Nun, Pei, and Sadik. And the Mem is actually used one place in the Tanakh in the beginning of a word. It shows that the Hebrew language is infinite and divine. The Hebrew that came from Aether, which came from Shem, Be'elokei Shem. Remember the word Elokei? Be'elokei Shem, the tense of Shem becomes Be'elokei Shem, the, the, the God of Shem, same letters. And the name Elohim has the same letters also. What if we say, Bereshis in the beginning of creation, Elokei Mem. The godliness of the Mem. God created the world. The essence of God. There's no names of God on that level. It's just God. Beyond name. Whatever his name is, we can't possibly grasp that name. It's called the essence of God. Mestama, or basically it's Yudke Vavke, implied. In the beginning, it created. It It applies to the essence of God. It created the godliness of divinity. Elokei Mem. This is by means of remez or hint. But from that we can understand that the names of God can be called upon to be understood in terms of prayer and knowledge of Torah. So when the rabbis explain the Torah to to go around multiplicity, we can understand just like the tent the tent of Shem, in the God of Shem, we can absolve ourselves of the problem and explain what the answer is. It never meant many gods. One explanation is, God in the beginning created the godliness of this final Mem. The divinity of the Hebrew language which goes back to Shem. 
Thank you for joining me this week. Next week we'll continue with this idea of the Hebrew language being understood as the Torah of Shem and prayer and using names of God in prayer and through the Torah of Shem. Thank you. Well, folks, that once again was Rabbi David Katt. Rabbi, thank you so much for that unbelievable teaching on Hanukkah and the Noahide. Folks, that's all we've got time for today. I apologize for the technical difficulties. It was at our end and not yours. We'll be back next week, and we hope you will be too. This is Doug Goldstein. Though my day job is being a financial advisor, on Monday nights at 7 p.m., I host the Goldstein on Geld Show on IsraelNationalRadio.com. Join me every week to get business news and currency updates, a few ideas for managing your money, and to hear the great interviews that I have with Nobel Prize winners, best-selling authors, even world chess champions. Hope to see you this Monday and every Monday at 7 p.m. on IsraelNationalRadio.com. People from all over the world listen to Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio. Shalom, my name is Nathan Shapkaz in Nederland, and I live in Jerusalem. Stem up on Arut Sheva, IsraelNationalRadio.com. You will be with Israel on the internet. Hola a todos, mi nombre es Daniel Cohen, nací en Buenos Aires, Argentina y estoy viviendo aquí hace 7 meses por un programa de Masá. Me encanta escuchar a Luz Sheva, www.israelnationalradio.com por todas sus noticias y los debates. Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio, spreading the light of Israel around the world.